When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good morning, everybody. Uneducated economist here. So nobody's quite into the chat just yet. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things that I had talked about in yesterday's video. Now, I had a couple of comments come in. And it was just like, man, I still don't understand anything you're saying. And that's 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 a real bummer because it was funny because one of the comments actually listed off a bunch of stuff like, you know, bank reserves and bonds and, you know, interest on excess reserves and stuff. And they had all these questions. And I thought to myself, man, you're asking all the right questions. Now you just go to do the research, figure out what those things are. And then, you know, pretty soon you start picking up like, you know, the information and then you understand kind of what's happening. But that's, that's how you do it. That's how I did it anyway, is like, you know, when you saw something or you see something that you don't understand, like, you know, they say like, what is bank reserves? You know, what does that mean? Well, then you go and research that. I mean, Investopedia has, you know, great information on all this stuff. Like, if you've come across a term that you don't understand, just Google that and then start reading up on it, and you'll find that, man, you start picking up a lot just by just trying to figure out what the definitions of some of these some of these statements are. Um, down in the description, I want to leave a link to a Federal Reserve. Um, I don't know if I don't. It wasn't like a speech. I think it was just like. I don't know, just an article or something. But anyways, talking about how they have transitioned from the, like, how they how they established the Fed funds rate. Now, we talked about it yesterday, and, and I think a lot of people got confused by what it was that I was trying to say because I was talking really fast, and a lot of times I end up just kind of assuming that a lot of people like are getting it, like understand the things that I say or the lingo that I'm using. And I realized, man, that's not, that's not the, the way this channel had originally started. I mean, the whole idea was to have a conversation that anybody could join into. And so I was like, it kind of bums me out when I, it doesn't bum me out, but I realized like, man, I, I don't know what it is that I don't know and what it is that the audience doesn't know. And trying to explain things sometimes it just ends up going right over everybody's heads. So I wanted to leave a link down in the description to this um, idea of an abundant reserve system. And because that's really how it is that the Federal Reserve is establishing the Fed funds rate. Now, it's pretty interesting when you hear people say, like, talk about Jerome Powell or they talk about, like, the Federal Reserve and losing their way and they want to blame Jerome Powell. Jerome Powell is the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Okay. And really... What that means is, is that he's like the voice for the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee. Now, the Federal Open Market Committee is a group of, I believe, 12 like Fed governors and presidents who join in and vote on way monetary policy is going to be conducted. Jerome Powell doesn't, I mean, he has, I believe, a vote in that group, but he doesn't have any decision making that he's doing with that. I mean, the only thing he's doing is voicing what it is that the monetary policy is going to be. And the governors and the rest of the the rest of the members of that FOMC, they're the ones who, like, they don't they don't mention it. Like, they don't talk about it in anything. Like, as far as their interviews and stuff, they let Jerome Powell talk about what it is that the monetary policy is going to be. They give their opinions, they give their thoughts, they give like you know their interpretation of things, but they won't talk about like what monetary policy is going to be. They let Jerome Powell do that. So Jerome Powell is like a, is just a messenger. That's all he is. So when people are like, man, we need to fire him. We need to do like they're pointing the finger at Jerome Powell. You're missing it. You got to be pointing your finger at the FOMC. That's really where the uh, where the decision making is taking place. But when it came to establishing what the Fed funds rate is now, the Fed funds rate, that's that's like a target. It's just it's just a number that they wrote on the wall saying this is what we're shooting for. How they get that Fed funds rate is really done differently like a few years ago compared to the way they do it today. Now, a long time, not a long time ago, a few years back when they had a limited reserve system, at the end of the day, there would be banks who were in need of reserves and some who had had excess reserves. And the reserves is 
I mean, the simplest way to understand it is cash, cash in the bank. Now, you have bank reserves, which are more digits in a computer, but if it was cash, it would kind of be the same thing. But most of this cash never leaves the banking system. It's just, this is part of the, it's part of that system. If it was cash, you know, then it would be like having to transfer, like literally like take handfuls of cash from one bank to another. So the bank reserves just make it easier for these banks to like do this overnight lending. Now, this is the way it used to be conducted, is that at the end of the day, there would be some banks when in, in need of reserves and some who are like have excess reserves. And the ones who had excess reserves would lend them to the ones who were in need of reserves. They had like a quota that they had to be at, like you need your reserves to be this at the end of the day or by, before the next day. I mean, essentially that's what it comes down to is that they needed it before the next day in order to conduct business, right? They needed you know these reserves on hand. So that overnight lending that would take place from the, the banks who had it to the ones who need it, that would be the overnight lending rate. That overnight lending rate was essentially the effective fund rate. That's what they were looking at. So like all loans after that would be, you know, going to people like you and me or just, you know, anybody else who was borrowing money. But that big bank overnight lending, that's like the least amount of interest that is going to be charged on a loan. So it's going from like one bank to another bank and then after that, loans would be more expensive, like as far as interest rates go. So this is how they established the Fed funds rate, is that the Federal Reserve would buy and sell treasuries or cash, you know, pull cash out of the banks or put cash into the banks with buying and selling treasuries off these banks in order to establish a reserve system or enough reserves within the system to conduct that Fed funds rate at the level that they were shooting for. Did I, did I get that part right so far? Okay, we moved into an abundant reserve system where there is no like needing for this overnight lending. Now I'm sure it still happens, but the abundant reserves gave all these banks pretty much all the reserves that they need and this overnight lending was no longer like an effective tool for establishing that Fed funds rate. So that's when like back in September of 2019 was it when we had the non-QEQE when all of a sudden overnight interest rates shot up to 10% is because there was this huge tax payment that had taken place. Now this is kind of confusing when you think about it but these big banks they had this corporate tax payment happen where all this cash moved from the banks over to the general treasury or the treasury general account the TGA and that was essentially cash leaving the system and moving over to the Federal Reserve where they have this account at, right? So this is like money that has now taken away from the banking system and moved into an account for the Treasury. Now the banks were like, oh crap, we don't have enough reserves on hand in order to meet our, our needs for the next day. So they need these reserves in order to operate. So the interest rate shot way up on it, trying to find anybody who could get this cash so that these banks would meet their reserve requirements in order to operate. That's when the Federal Reserve kicked in the, the repo facility. Now, the repo facility, this is kind of confusing on itself, but when the general treasury account was loaded up with that cash, when the tax payment was made, that left a, not enough cash in the system. And this is the reason why you saw that 10% overnight interest rate take place. That's when the Federal Reserve says, okay, well, the government had been doing all this spending, right? All this, all this, like, issuing of treasuries. The banks were loaded on treasuries, but they didn't have a lot of cash. Now, a bank at the end of the, you know, really can sit on treasuries or cash, and really sitting on treasuries is a little bit better because you at least get a little bit of interest rate on it. But they're not cash, and some at some point you need cash, right? The cash is, like, what does the settlement. It's the... The way they kind of, you know, describe it is like the lubrication for the banking system. Okay, so they had all these treasuries, but not enough cash because all this cash had gone from this corporate tax payment over to the treasury. Okay, so now they had all these reserves. The Federal Reserve says, okay, there's not enough cash in the system. Interest on overnight lending rates has gone up to 10%. Give us some treasuries. We'll give you cash. At the end of the day, we'll swap it out, right? So this is where the repo facility started kicking in is that they would take the treasuries and hand over a bunch of cash. This is what they refer to as the non-QE QE because it wasn't necessarily like the quantitative easing like we understand it as far as the Federal Reserve expanding their balance sheet, loading up on treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. This was like this overnight thing that was taking place to keep the, keep the banks with plenty of cash on hand. Okay, so this is the overnight like, you know, repo facility 
that was taking place in order to keep that 10% or that interest on excess reserves from being at 10%, they were able to bring it back down to the appropriate level for the Fed funds target. Okay, hopefully I got that part right. <laughs> okay, so today what we have is the federal, re the, the effective fund rate, which is the actual rate that these big banks lend to each other on, that it's not done at this overnight lending rate done from like, you know, the ones who need reserves to the ones who have excess reserves. Because the banks are loaded up with an abundant reserve, now it's moved over to the repo facility where they can either take cash and hand them treasuries or take treasuries and hand them cash depending on which way they need it to go. So right now, because we have this massive amount of cash within the system, they're taking the cash and handing over treasuries and trying to establish the Fed funds rate there at the repo facility. Now, some of these banks, when they have excess reserves, they can take those excess reserves and put it to the Federal Reserve in an account there, which is interest on excess reserves. So this is the way that they are able to establish that Fed funds level, that Fed funds target. And that is really important to understand because it's completely different from the way that they used to do it, where they have this interest on, or I'm sorry, the overnight lending rate. Since that is no longer part of it and it's now moved over to this Federal Reserve like repo facility that establishes the Fed funds rate, that's really important to kind of get your, you know, to wrap your head around because now it's not necessarily like how much cash is in the system. It's more about what it is the Fed is arbitrarily saying that the interest rates would be and how much they're willing to, you know, lend that money or borrow that money at, at the Fed, at the repo facility. Does that kind of establish, I don't know if that like makes sense or anything, but that's how they get interest rates from that point on to follow the Fed funds rate. Because if the bank can take their cash or money market account or whatever and go to the repo facility and establish an interest rate, everything after that interest rate is going to be higher, right? I mean, if it's the Fed is the lowest that it can go, then the bank can lend that money out to, you know, somebody who's going to buy a house or a car or to a business or something like that, and that interest rate is going to be higher than what the repo facility is going to do. The repo facility is like the bottom of the line. All right, did I make sense on all that? Let's let's talk about some of this stuff. Okay, questions. What's the difference between dollars and stocks if both can be printed? Um, can stocks? I mean, there there's a huge difference in owning stock in a company. And then having printed dollars like those, that's not even the same thing. Like, you know, I, I mean, I'm not sure if I, if the question's like not really applicable, like you can't really answer that question. That's not, that's not like two things that are related to each other like that. You know? At least not the way I see it. Um, hey buddy, can you share some opinion about the European market? To be perfectly honest with you guys, I don't. I have not been following as much of what's going on in the markets of other countries. I am really kind of focused in on what's happening here in the United States and some of the sovereign debt crisis that has taken place. So I'm looking at like countries that are going into default, countries that are going into default and need to sell their natural resources to China in order to like make up for the fact that they can't pay their debts. That's the type of thing that I think is going to be more critical. You're going to find markets that that changes on people's perception. I mean, if you think that there's going to be a recession coming into the future, then most likely you're probably going to sell your stocks off, right? To try and get a hold as much cash as you can in order to deal with the fact that you're going into a downturn. So anyway, um, I, I'm sorry. I wish I could tell you more about the European markets, but I just haven't been following them that close. Um, do you see stagflation in the future? Um, so, okay, so that was another question that has happened is that somebody asked, it was just like, okay, so how come it is after this pandemic, all of a sudden we can't find any workers. There's a lot to think about there because one, you had a whole bunch of people retire at the same time. There wasn't a lot of people being trained during that same time. So you have people retiring and not a lot of people going to school, like truck driving school, for example. So that didn't bring a whole lot of new employment into the system, but it's it goes much deeper than that. That's like, I think that's a small like symptom of the, of the bigger problem. I feel that the bigger problem came from the corporate debt that had just been like incredibly popular. People were diving into corporate debt with like 
jumping in in both feet. This was from incredibly low interest rates. So you have low interest rates on the safe assets like the US treasuries. And if you are looking for a fixed income and that and that safe US treasuries is not providing enough yield, like enough return on the investment, then you have to take on risk. And that risk goes into corporations for the most part, where you can get a higher interest rate. So a lot of people started diving into corporate debt. Now, the special purpose vehicle that was set up, the corporate debt lending facility, didn't help matters at all. Right? So this is where like people were really thinking that the Federal Reserve was going to be diving into the corporate debt and they were trying to front run them. So they bought up all this corporate debt thinking that they were gonna be able to sell it to the Federal Reserve for a profit. The Federal Reserve in the end just sat back, didn't really do anything but watch. They had put out that credible threat saying they were gonna do it, but they really didn't do much. That diving into corporate debt gave the zombie corporations the environment to gorge on this cheap debt. Now, a zombie corporation needs ever increasing amounts of debt in order to survive. Well, you think about it, if they are a zombie corporation, they're hiring people, they're taking you know, resources, they're taking away from the viable economy, from the viable corporations that are out there. So here you have all these zombies who have hired people, they shouldn't exist, but yet they do. So this is where like the viable companies are now having trouble trying to find employment. Not to mention, if you have this kind of situation going on where you have like these zombie corporations who are taking the employment, taking the people, and like they shouldn't even exist, but they do, that also gives room for people to move out of like the service industry and into these positions because there is such desperation for employment. Now, the service industry is suffering big time from it. I mean, I was reading articles about how restaurants are like just in both the business owners and the and the customers are kind of pissed because, you know, for one, they have to wait forever to get served. The service is like, you know, limited. So, the you know, even the staff is probably overworked and stressed. And so it's not a pleasurable experience. You know, the food has gotten expensive and there's like quality issues with that and diminishing of like size. And so there's like a bunch of issues that are taking place within the restaurant industry and the service industry altogether. And you have to think, <clears throat> if these zombie corporations didn't exist, where would all those people go? Well, after they filled in the viable corporations, once they filled in those positions, then what's left? Back down into the service industry where pretty much anybody can get a job. I'm not saying that they're, it, you know, like anybody can be a waitress or a waiter. Sure, anybody can like, you know, bring food from the kitchen to the table, but it takes a good talented person to do a good job at it. And if you do a good job at it, you can make some serious money. I mean, I know some bartenders and, and waitress and waiters who can who can rack it in. I mean, bring in some serious money, especially if they do good and get some good tips off of it. So it's not like it's a, a, a brain dead job. I mean, you have to think about it. And in order to do it well, then you have to be good at it. But still, it's not like something that, you know, somebody, you don't have to go to school to do this or anything. It doesn't take any special knowledge. You just have to be, you know, wanting to do a good job and then do that. But if all these other jobs are available where you can go and get some title for some corporation that you couldn't even believe, like you didn't even have any training or understanding of it, but yet you, here you are working for some corporation, that's not a real job. That's a zombie corporation job. And at some point when those things fail, you're going to find that those the best talent will move over to the other corporations who are viable and everybody else who shouldn't have really had that job to begin with will go back to the service industries in order to get paid. So that's really where I feel that the massive unemployment or not the massive, the massive employment or tight labor market really occurred from. It came from the feeding of zombie corporations. All right. If you can't eat or pay bills, how much faith are you going to have? And that's why, I mean, why can't you eat or pay bills? Like, you know, somebody was telling me the other day, it was just like, I don't understand. You can't swing a dead cat around without hitting a job. And I thought that was a funny statement, but not that I think swinging dead cats around, but just the idea that everywhere you look still has places that are hiring. Like, it's like everywhere is still willing to hire people. And I don't think that's going to last much longer. I mean, once you see the heads of these zombie corporations get knocked off, you're going to start finding like all these jobs that are available out there. They're going to disappear real quick. And the massive pay, like, you know, I heard like somebody was asking for $25 an hour to work as a waitress at one of these local places down here. And it was just like, you know, like $25 an hour 
at maybe a fancy restaurant would be one thing, but to get $25 an hour to work like, you know, in just one of these regular eating establishments is like, that's, that's, it's far beyond what, you know, is reasonable out there. But if nobody else is there to work, you can ask, you can certainly ask for that $25 an hour. It doesn't mean you're going to get it. And then you wonder why there's nobody like, you know, staffing these places because that's what they're asking for. Well, if it comes to a point where they're hungry and there's no more jobs out there, they'll take that job for $18 an hour or even less, knowing that they might get tips out of it or something. That's what's going to end up happening. Um, it's just a matter of time. <laughs> Very interesting theory. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I don't know how many else talk like this, but that's the way I, that's the way I see it. I mean, you know, there's a lot of excuses and reasons that people can put out there, but I, that's the way I feel is happening. I mean, I think the, the zombie corporations have really just, you know, screwed this all up and it was due to the incredibly low interest rates the dive into that yield, you know, the special purpose vehicle that was set up. I mean, it just, it just makes so much more sense to me than anything else out there other than like so many people just want to take this idea that, you know, the federal reserve just wants to destroy the middle class. So like, uh, I don't think they have this idea. It's just like, how do we destroy the middle class guys? Like, let's, let's, let's make pain for the middle class. Let's do that. How do we do that? That, mm, That'd be fun. Like, I don't, (laughs) I don't see it like that, you know? All right. There were so many IPOs in 2020, uh, a new one each day. Right. So that's kind of what I'm getting at. It was just like, all of a sudden, here's all these like businesses that really just shouldn't have even existed. Like not even business corporations. And it's going to get really ugly because, you know, you think about once the money starts tightening up, we're going to start finding like these, there is no saving it. There is like simply just no saving the, the, those corporations. I mean, unless they can borrow more, it won't happen. They're going to fail. And so it's just a matter of time before we see it. All right. There's 410 of you in here. I'm going to be out here for maybe another 15, 20 minutes. Hit the like button. Let's see if we can get a bunch of people in here. Got 95 likes going right now. We should see that well up or a hundred, 200. All right. Is the reset is this reset. It's going to come down to two things, being an owner or having a skill. If you don't have one of these two, you're screwed. Um, I think, I mean, that's for sure. I mean, that's going to be an issue. I think the biggest problem is going to be if you have a debt that is taking you to your limit right now. Like if you have no money at the end of the month because of your debts, that's going to be a major problem for you because it's going to get very hard to cover your debt to, to, to make those payments. And that's, that's really where the problem is going to come in. Like if gas prices are higher and food prices are higher, those are going to be the two things you definitely buy. And then your debts are going to end up suffering from that. And then, or not suffering, you're going to suffer with the fact that you can't make your debt payments. And then now your credit rating starts getting screwed up and it makes it harder to take out loans. And it's just, you know, life gets really, really, really difficult after that. I mean, I lived life for a long time with a really bad credit score and almost no money and lots of debt. And it sucks. Like it sucks. You can't do anything. All you can do is go to work and that's it. Anything else beyond that is going to mean that you're going to have to suffer with the, the debt even longer or just have to suffer without it. And that's really where a lot of people are going to end up being. And I don't know how long that's going to take. I mean, until pretty much until the average inflation rate comes back down to the 2% target, average target, whatever the hell it is anymore, basically until the Federal Reserve arbitrarily says, okay, we've had enough. We're ready to start, you know, stimulating again. But, you know, that's, anyway, let's move on. Uh, What's the next question? (laughs) Uh, I don't have a pot to piss in. I'm okay. Well, you, you're probably going to be less affected than somebody who has a lot of debt and a new car and a big fancy house and a job at a zombie corporation. You're going to do better than they are. You know, I mean, it may not look like it, but you will be. All right. It's called being broke. Yeah. All right. I am assume you are spending your lunch with us. Thank you. I am spending lunch with you. Uh, I have probably another, I don't know, 15 minutes or so. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> war is coming. Well, it could be. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised by that. You know, most wars are fought over natural resources and debt. So that's 
going to be an issue coming. So, yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. I paid off all my debts. I don't even register a credit score. So then there's that. Um, yeah, I've paid off most of my debts. The only debt that I really have is my house payment. That's really the only one. I mean, I have a little bit of credit card that I use, but I, I pay that off every month. I just, I, this is how I kind of got my credit score up is I took out a credit card every other month until I had four credit cards. And then what I would do is I would make purchases on each one of those credit cards. Like I'd make hundred dollar purchases on them and then pay $95 of that and carry a $5 balance over to the next month and then buy like another $100 on it. And I would do this every month. Like sometimes I would pay the credit card off and then not use it, but then the next month I might use that particular credit card. When I did this, man, I shot my credit score up so big, so fast. Like I just checked my credit score. Like three years ago, my credit score was like less than 600. Right now it's at 820. I mean, it's just like I've, I've nailed it with my credit score. After I was able to clear off the damn foreclosure off my off my house and had no debts and reestablished new credit lines and then made payments on those credit lines, it was no problem. I shot my credit score right through the roof. Uh, please pay as much of your debt as you can. If you really want, yeah, that's, those who are in debt are going to be are going to like, especially if you're just strung out to the end of your payments, like your monthly income barely covers your cost of living and your debt payments. That's going to be a very difficult position to be in. Like, I don't know how to, how you get out of that other than, you know, maybe downgrade your car, sell, sell something off and pay your credit cards. Like do take a second job. Like right now, I mean, you can get a job just about anywhere doing anything. And I mean, as lame as it sounds, I mean, even getting a job at a fast food restaurant, I mean, how much like effort do you really have to put into getting a paycheck? You can just practically just show up and collect one. So like having a second job, at least temporarily to relieve a bunch of your debts, I would totally suggest doing that. Getting out of debt is going to be like the, the place to be when we start going into this major downturn. I, I mean, I can't, I can't stress that enough, you know? All right. Fast food is hard work. I Commercial fishing is hard work. Logging is hard work. Construction is hard work. Being at a counter is not hard work, except for mentally it's stressful, right? So there's a difference between like doing sales, working retail, and then cooking for a living. Like a good line cook, a good restaurant cook, they work damn hard to make that happen, right? So they have to be good at it. They have to be quick. They have to be thinking about it the entire time, be able to think five steps ahead. That is not something that is easy to do. That is that is hard. But physically, at the end of the day, if you are commercial fishing, you are busting your ass comparatively to somebody who's cooking. I mean, I'm sorry to say it, but throwing crab pots around, there is very few people in the world who can actually make that happen. You have to be physically fit, and then you have to take on you know, the courage to actually go out there and fish. Like, out, and I mean, take your life into your hands. It's difficult. That is hard work, right? <laughs> All right. Easy jobs paying more and more is what makes it so tight. Um, easy jobs paying more. I think the reason why they're paying more and more is because they don't have anybody to show up at those jobs because nobody is truly hungry and you have zombie corporations that you can go to work for. Take out the zombies, take out the ability for people to buy, have or buy cheap food, and they will go to work. I promise you, they will show up. I mean, once you go hungry, you will work. I mean, that's it. That's all there is to it. All right. The problem with fast food is the mental aspect, for sure. Yeah, I mean, who wants to, you know, I mean... I, I don't know if anybody would like really brag unless you're like a teenager with a job thinking that, you know, man, I'm, this is awesome. I got this job working fast food. Like, I mean, that that's not exactly like, you know, a, you know, a very glorious job, you know, glamorous job to be in, not, not by any means, but it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, if you're paying off your debt, somebody can say, yeah, I took a second job working at this fast food restaurant. And I was able to buy a car in two years, you know, I mean, that's pretty cool, right? 
How will housing shortfall affect you, good sir? I, I really don't know. Like, how much, how far, I mean, our house is going to fall 25%. If that happened, I might be maybe underwater. So, I I don't know. I might be just right where I owe all my debt. So, to me personally, I am not even worried about a housing downturn. Because I don't plan on moving. I don't plan on selling my house. All I plan on doing is making my payments. And, in fact, I'm making advance payments just in case I end up into a situation in which I can't make my monthly payment for a month or two. I've already paid up a month or two. Like I don't have my next payment isn't due until like October, I think. So I'm like, this is how I'm handling it is that instead of keeping the money in the bank, I'm making my payments forward. And at some point when I get far enough ahead, when I get like six months ahead on my payments, then I might start making principal payments on it. But I'm like at three percent, three and a quarter percent on my interest rates. I'm not stressing it. I'm not stressing a downturn in the housing market. Not for me personally, not in my own home. Now, a downturn in the housing market might affect my job, like where I work, because I sell building materials for a living. That might be a problem coming into the future. But, you know, as far as like, you know, me personally, my house, I am not stressed about it at all. Uh, thumbs up to UE. Thank you very much. Uh, let's see here. They need to pay the root people. You need a doctor once. You need a farmer three times a day. It's become absurd. Yeah. You know, and that's something else I was thinking about. Like, you notice nobody cares about, like, immigration anymore? Like, nobody was like... I used to hear this term, like... I used to hear this all the time. The illegals are taking all our jobs. Well, I thought about that. You know? Well, right now, nobody's stressed about that, right? Nobody, Nobody's stressing it. And if you think about, like, if you were to try to control inflation... Like, inflation really comes down to jobs and what people are getting paid. If you have more input costs, like a business has more input costs because they pay the employee more, then it's just natural that the items that they sell or the business that they do is going to have to go up in order to get the profit they need to pay those employees, that higher, that higher wage. Now, for years and years, we, talked, we heard about this immigration problem, illegals coming over the border and stuff like that. Well, okay, you know regardless of what position you're in, let's just look at it for the reality it is. Okay, so you got illegals moving in. Most likely, they're willing to take lesser jobs, right? Lesser pay to get that job. Well, that's not an input cost that's increasing to these businesses. Now, a lot of people are like, yeah, greedy corporations taking it. But no, that's really like keeping inflation from running out of control because if it's the employment that's causing it, well, then you have illegals who are getting paid less. That's like keeping the inflation down. But all of a sudden, here's no illegals or the illegal issue, illegal immigration or, in, you know, employees or whatever doesn't seem to be an issue. You still need these. You still need employment. And so the prices of these wages go up. So, like, you think about it, did like all this illegal immigration all throughout, like, the 80s and 90s and into 2000s? Was that a way to keep inflation from running out of control? I mean, you can say that it's like an issue and you say that you're going to do something about it, but then don't do anything. Just say that you're going to do it. That way people are like, man, the government's trying to stop them from coming over the border, but they really not. I mean, I don't think they were. I mean, there was like, there, I mean, I work construction and I tell you, I worked with a lot of illegals and every single one of them were awesome people who did hard work and busted their asses and I appreciated being next to them the entire time. I didn't have any problems with it whatsoever. I had a job and I wasn't complaining about it. But just to take the reality for the situation in which it is, it does make me wonder that. It was just like, so why don't you just open up the borders and let more people come into work? I mean, then you'd have the problem solved, right? You know, I, I just don't think that, I honestly think that the whole immigration thing was was used it was it was a it was a ploy you know all right i think what's going on going to happen is everyone's going to form a union for better pay and corporations will then downsize incorporate automation and get rid of the middleman thus driving the recession um so what's going to happen like are robots going to build stuff for other robots? Is that is that what's going to happen? I mean, that's kind of the way it sounds. Like, I mean, are 
I don't know how it is that people are supposed to like have an automation thing happening, taking away all the jobs, causing a recession, but then that actually produces products that nobody buys. Like, I mean, who's what corporation would do that? Like, most people want to produce things so that they can sell it. And if you think that there's a recession or you're knowing there's a recession or the things that you're doing is causing a recession, then most likely they're not going to happen. Because if you go and build all these robots and build products that nobody buys, then what's the point? There was no point in doing it. You know? Thanks for the $20. You sent that to me. One drop. Thank you, $20, for the $20. Let's see. People in the Midwest care a lot about illegal immigrants. Here, it's screwing up a ton of services and pushing down wages. Yeah. Okay. So that's what I was talking about. It kept the wages down. People were complaining about that. Now, let me ask. In the Midwest, is there, like, all of a sudden, like, all the jobs are filled? Like, is there no unemployment? Like, no, like, help-wanted signs anywhere in the Midwest? I, I... I, I mean, I guess it could be. I haven't been to the Midwest, but around here, there's help wanted signs everywhere. I mean, I even have them on the counter at work. You know, we're looking for people and nobody's showing up to apply. So, like, how are they screwing that up? Like, I don't see how they're messing that up right now. Uh, let's see here. Let's move on. Then there are so many help wanted signs in the Midwest. Okay. I, I figured as much. Like, it can't be just around my area. I mean, I, I hear it all the time in the news, and then I see it personally. I just assume that must be the way it is across the country, you know? Uh, all right. Job openings everywhere. It's because they are now... Firth? What are you trying to say? <laughs> all right. Let me see. Moving on here. Here in the Southwest, same thing, UE. Help wanted signs all over Wisconsin. I live in Wisconsin. Unemployment is less than 3%. And see, this is all going to change. This is like once, you're going to see it. Once layoffs start to kick in, like people are like, like what's the, this is going to be like the first recession I think anybody has ever experienced where you didn't have massive unemployment. It's going to be the weirdest thing that people have ever seen. You know, because typically what goes along with the recession is like a downturn in GDP, right? Two, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. And what goes along with it? A lot of unemployment, layoffs and stuff like that happen. Well, even if you had a lot of layoffs right now, like I'm saying, even if you knock the heads off the zombie corporations, they just move over to the viable corporations. And most likely we're not going to have a big uptick in unemployment, like record unemployment levels. I just don't see that happening. Unless something dramatic, like, you know, another pandemic or something else kicks in that would cause that to happen. But just naturally occurring through this economy, I don't see that taking place. I see a lot of zombie corporations going out of business and those people will go over to the other corporations. The ones who can't get hired at those corporations will move into the service jobs. And that's really how I see it happening. And I don't think we're going to have a bunch of unemployment, like high unemployment. I could see where wages will stop increasing because of that. Like, if you lose your job at the zombie corporations, can't find another job at another viable corporation, you're going to take the job at the at the at the at the service industry. And if you're going up, you know, against twelve other people who are doing the exact same thing, you're not going to ask for higher wage than that. And in fact, you may even take a lesser wage to guarantee that you will get the job because you need to make your debt payment. Uh, you keep saying zombie corporations. Which ones? I couldn't tell you which ones are zombie corporations. I mean, I can't label them all off. Like, I I don't know. Like, I don't know which ones they are. You're going to find them once the interest rates rise and the ability to get cheap credit is no longer there. You're going to start seeing layoffs happening. I mean, when you see the layoffs already kicking in, it makes you wonder if they're zombies to begin with. Like Tesla, you know? I mean, I'm not saying that they are. But soon as the soon as the interest rates lifted a little bit, boom, they started laying off people, and a lot of other people did too. And so, like, what was it? Uh, Maybelline, right? weren't they weren't they another one that you know like almost immediately started like you know going going south because like you know having troubles with the uh, with the rising of interest rates. Uh, zombie corporations equal Robin Hood. <laughs> Country is nuts. Yeah, where's lumber now? Well. Lumber is like at six forty per thousand or something like that, and 
I can see like maybe by the end of summer, like this is really where my prediction is kind of landing that you will find tight inventory levels. Right now we have mills uh, curtailing development. So at some point we are going to find the inventory level drop, the prices will go up and the mills will kick back into gear again. But right now there's not a lot of demand for lumber like we had experienced just recently. You know, it's difficult building a home home builders are like worried about prices coming down so like how likely are you to want to start a bunch of new houses right now if you're worried about the price of homes going down like you have this projection that the house is going to sell for you know this amount of money but then by the time you complete the house you can't sell it for that much you have to drop the price on it in order to move it well that's cutting into your margins and your profit and most likely like as a builder if this is what you are thinking is going to happen then you're probably going to back off on that a little bit saying maybe i won't build 20 houses like i'm talking about the small time builders too you know maybe you won't build 20 houses or the you know 10 houses that you normally do every year maybe you only build two or three so there's going to be a drop in the amount of homes coming onto market and there's a lot of confusion taking place in that too because we actually might see an increase of homes coming onto the market at the same time the builders are dropping the amount that they start simply because there are so many homes in the market right now that have not been completed because of the shortage of labor and the short supply of material coming in and just the delays that are happening you could see where like there's a possibility that these homes get completed at the same time there's less homes being start that are starting so even though the information out there will say there's less homes coming onto the market the completion of homes might tick up for a little while before the effects of home builders slowing down actually, you know, affects the inventory. Did I say all that right? I don't know. I kind of babbled that one out. Sorry. Thank you, Mitho Nelson, for the $5. Happy Earth Strong when it gets here. Revlon is a zombie. Maybe it was Revlon, Revlon I was talking about. Yeah, a zombie borrows to pay debt. And that's where, it, like, everybody borrows. Like, all corporations borrow. I mean, I don't think there's any one of them that ops, operates strictly off of cash. I, I just don't see that happening. So they all borrow, but there's one thing to need to borrow. And there's another thing when you, you're choosing to borrow because you were able to get really low interest rates from that. You know, you think about it, like a lot of these corporations borrowed money incredibly cheap and bought back their own stock. What would happen to both bonds? If they're, you know, if they're selling bonds cheap yield, that's high prices on bond, right? Yields work inversely to price. So they're able to sell their bonds off for a higher price or at least get a, a lower interest rate off of it. And then they took that and bought their own stock. So what happens to the stock market, right? Bonds and stock rise together. Well, if they come into a situation in which they need to pay their bondholders and they don't really have the cash, what are they gonna do? They're gonna sell their stocks, right? So you can see the stocks and the bonds going down at the same time as well. You know, as they sell and, you know, as the, the demand to, to buy their their corporate debt just doesn't exist right that means that the yield on them is going to start rising and the prices are going to start falling crypto gold silver changing the world um yeah i don't know that's that's the thing like somebody says you know why don't you do like what you said you were going to do at the rebel capitalist event and continue the idea of ending the fed if you want to end the fed you're going to have to find a competing currency that's really what it comes down to and if it happens to be silver, that's cool. If it happens to be crypto, that's cool. Those, both of those are competing currencies. Chances of you taking your silver bullion down to the store and being able to trade that for their goods or services is very unlikely. Same thing with Bitcoin. Like you're not gonna be able to do that. These are not competing currencies. I mean, sure, they could be, they should be, but they're not. So the reality of the situation is, is that it's just the dollar. The dollar is the only thing that you have for a currency. At least the only one that everybody else is going to accept. That gives the Federal Reserve a monopoly. So if you want to end the Fed, start doing transactions in cryptocurrencies or silver. Like when you hire somebody to, to do some work for you, like, you know, if they're going to mow the lawn or something, ask them if they'll take cryptocurrencies or silver and pay them in that. I mean, if you really want to end the Fed, that's how you have to do it. Okay, guys, I wish I could stay out here all day, but I'm going to give you another two minutes here. Let me answer this one from one drop. Thank you again for the $20. You're very generous. Uh, we have help wanted, but not the entry-level step-up jobs. The jobs that should be going to young Americans 
so they gain experience and can step up to better jobs. Minimum wage only applies to Americans. Yeah, um, I could totally agree with that. That's, I mean, you know, that was the whole point. Like, you know, a, a minimum wage job was an entry-level job. It wasn't meant to sustain you for, for your life. It wasn't meant to provide you with a, with a good standard of living. It's a minimum wage job for a reason. It's like a job that anybody can do. You get in there, you make your payments on stuff, and then you try to find something better. I mean, or at least advance beyond the minimum wage payment that you're getting. I hear all these people, I can't live off a minimum wage. No kidding, nobody can. Nobody can live off a minimum wage. I mean, the chances of you being able to do that are slim to none. So, like, minimum wage is not meant to be a, a, a living, I mean, they might say it, but it's not going to be a living wage job. It's just not going to happen. Unless you have no debts and your place has been, is paid for. I mean, I just don't see where having a minimum wage job is going to provide you with anything. Two minimum wage jobs would do it. Right? You can have two minimum wage jobs and probably do quite well. Yeah. Alrighty, I have to go back to work. Mowing yards for cash is a good paying entry level job. Yeah, it is. Alright, minimum wage is very high. Makes my pay look bad now. Yeah, that, I agree. Like, I felt like I was, you know, I mean, I didn't have a college degree in anything like I just went to work at a lumber yard I was making minimum wage when I started there and I would get a raise and then shortly later the minimum wage would increase and it would almost be to the wage increase I got so I'd work really hard take on more responsibility try to be you know do more for the company and get more money okay so now I got a raise again and the minimum wage would increase so and then I'd have to work even harder you know to try and like you know find myself advancing into the company and then realize I can't advance anymore in this company I'm topped out of my pay, and then they had increased minimum wage again. And so it was like this minimum wage was always nipping at my heels the entire time. Like, no matter how hard I worked, it didn't really matter. It was always just, like, right behind me. So, like, it, minimum wage really, I, I, I mean, it needs to be abolished. That's what it really comes down to. They need to get rid of minimum wage because minimum wage is it's actually... It's very damaging for businesses, and, and, and it's also damaging for the people. And it's not, like, it's not like being mean to say this. It just, it's just the case. There are some people out there who are not smart enough to earn their employer minimum, to earn, to earn minimum wage from their employer. They just, they're just not that smart. They just can't do it. Like Maybe the only thing that they could do is empty garbage and sweep floors. And at minimum wage, that's not worth it to the company. Like, they, they can't hire somebody to just do that because minimum wage doesn't allow them to. But if they could give them half of the minimum wage or a third of the minimum wage, well, then that person who couldn't find a job anywhere else because they're not smart enough can now work for a company. They can actually earn a pay. Like, maybe they are only smart enough to sweep the, sweep the parking lot. Well, if you didn't have minimum wage, a lot more people could work. Right now, granted, it's not a living wage. It's not gonna, but it never was meant to be. Like some people need to work, but they're not smart enough to work and make a money, make the money for their employer to earn a minimum wage. So really, by establishing a high minimum wage, what you are doing is you are telling some people that they are just too stupid to work in this country, and that's sad. That is very sad. It shouldn't be that way. You know, you should be able to rise and fall on your own merits. Maybe sweep in the parking lot, you become the best parking lot sweeper ever. And then you get to sweep the store. And then you get to clean the windows and take the garbage out. And the next thing you know, you might actually be stocking shelves. And then, you know what? You are earning minimum wage. You are doing something that can actually provide your employer with a minimum wage type of, type of pay. But for the most part, that's what minimum wage is saying, is that if you can't get a job earning minimum wage, then you're too stupid to work in this country. And that's just sad. I hate, the, I hate to think that. Okay, um, gosh, I wish I could stay out, hang out with you guys. So what needs to happen to get around mill curtailments so we can keep prices low? You can't. That's not the way free market works. I mean, what ends up happening is, is that if the price drops too low, it's six fifty per thousand. Now, granted, a few years ago, six fifty per thousand was enough for a mill to make some pretty decent money at. But things have changed, right? Now you had to hire old new people. You had to increase the wages to keep them from leaving. You got input costs that are rising and everything that goes with it. So six fifty per thousand is now the minimum. 
you can't go any lower than that. So if they're saying, okay, we'll give you 650 per thousand for your lumber, you'd be like, no, you can, all that lumber I already milled up, I'll sell that at 650, but I'm not producing any more at that. But then you got inventory tightening up and people are like, no, I'm, I, it's an inelastic demand. We got builders who need lumber. You, they're they're going to pay any price for it. We already found that out. They were willing to pay $80 a sheet for half inch CDX. So when you have an inelastic demand like that, it doesn't matter how high the prices go. So if you can tighten up the inventory and run the prices up to 800 per thousand, well, then the mills are like, oh, hell yeah, I'll get in on that. And they'll start pumping out as much lumber as they can. So it creates a situation in which that lumber is either going to be like, you know, somewhere around the 600 per thousand mark and up to 800 per thousand. Once it gets to 800, they'll pump it out and start filling up the inventory levels, anything below that, and they're going to tighten up inventory. So that's just the way it works. There's no way of getting around it. You know, because of the bullwhip effect and the oversupply, undersupply, you have these extremes that hit the market. So you have like way oversupply and then way undersupply and then way oversupply. When these things happen, then, you know, you have to find that equilibrium. It takes some time. You know, uh, starting next month, they're going to actually shorten the or reduce the size of the contracts by like 20 uh, down to 25 percent of what they normally are which is huge. It's going to bring in a lot more buyers into the market, a lot more speculators. And now when that happens, you're going to have a lot more buyers and sellers. Well, that's going to find the equilibrium a lot faster. A lot of people kind of talked about it being like a stock split, and I just don't see it the same way. It's still the same material. It's still going to be the same price per thousand. There is no going to be like all of a sudden, I mean, you might find where the equilibrium happens quicker and at a lower price because of it, or it might end up being a higher price. We don't know. It depends on the mills, I guess, and how much inventory they put out there. But I don't see where like this this diminishing of the size of the contracts, the futures contracts, going from 110,000 board feet to, you know, 30 or 40,000 board feet or whatever it is. I don't I don't see that causing the prices to like diminish dramatically. I think the mills will still want 650 per thousand at the bare minimum and at 800 they'll just pump out as much as they can and I th I don't think that's going to change. I think the equilibrium that they find as far as those prices will be established a lot quicker if they have more people participating in those contracts. I don't know if I said all that right, but anyway, Thank you guys. Thank you for hanging out. Thank you very much for the super chats. You guys are so awesome. 526 of you here. I got 220 likes from it. I can't thank you guys enough. Uneducated economist, you let me know.